Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eats Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. This is a special edition of Fraud Eats Strategy in which we're airing an episode which was originally uh, an interview of former FBI Special Agent Greg Coleman, the case agent on the Wolf of Wall Street, that was a part of NAVEX Global's 10th annual virtual conference, NAVEX Next. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. Welcome to our session, Investigative Challenges, The More Things Change, The More They Stay the Same, which promises to be a really interesting discussion. I'm Scott Moritz. I'm a former FBI Special Agent and currently Senior Managing Director at Global Investigative and Risk Consulting Firm, FTI Consulting. I'm joined today by former FBI Special Agent Greg Coleman. In fact, Greg and I used to work together. Greg's FBI career spanned over 25 years investigating financial crimes, money laundering, and criminally derived assets leading to asset forfeiture. Many of his investigations investigations involved stock market manipulations where the proceeds were laundered through shell companies and offshore bank accounts. Greg was the case agent responsible for the investigation of Jordan Belfort and others at Stock Boiler Room Stratton Oakmont. Belfort's rise to power and subsequent arrest and conviction were chronicled in the movie Wolf of Wall Street. So in today's session, I'm very excited about, Greg's going to share how the Wolf of Wall Street case came about, provide an overview of how Belfort used pump and dump schemes and other techniques to defraud his many victims, and maybe share a war story or two about the case that maybe aren't really well known, which is you know also I think, certainly very interesting to me and, and I think will be very interesting to all of you. So Greg and I are then going to shift gears a little bit and discuss internal investigations, including how the pandemic has changed how law enforcement and the private sector has had to approach investigations when uh, business travel and even being in the same room with someone isn't always an option. So uh, welcome, Greg. It's great to see you, and I'm so glad that we're doing this together. Uh, Great to be here, Scott. Great to see you again. Great to work with you again also. Yeah, likewise. So with the popularity of the Wolf of Wall Street, a term that Jordan Belfort coined himself, by the way, uh, most people have a vague understanding of the case, but the actual criminal conduct underlying the case was kind of glossed over in the movie. Can you give us an overview of the case, what it was about, your role, and the scale of the investigation? Yeah, I'd be happy to. An overview of the case, I mean, it was a combination of existing types of frauds and new types of frauds put together. I think an interesting place to start would be about how did the case come about? And I wish I could say that I went out and I developed the case on my own, but you have to put the case in context. And so I'll just do that quickly and you'll understand how it came about. It was in the early 1990s and it's right after the Michael Milken, Ivan Bosky scandal, which by the way, the Bureau was not involved in, the FBI was not involved in, that was done by postal inspectors. But people at the FBI saw what was going on on Wall Street and they decided that they wanted to to be involved in stopping and preventing those type of... Of crimes. And so it was in really early 1992 that the FBI set up the very first squad of agents designed to do nothing but attack Wall Street related crimes. And so 
you know, as we're trying to get our footing in early 1992, um, we're also establishing relationships with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And it was early in that year, roughly February or March, that the Securities and Exchange Commission actually sued Jordan Belfort civilly and his firm and several other brokers. And so when we we met with the SEC, they, you know, they provided this case and said, look, we just recently sued this young Turk, very aggressive stockbroker from Long Island, and you may want to take a look at this case. And so that's how the case was born at the FBI, sort of administratively. We brought the case in, and I don't think any agent really ever knows how big a case will be when they first get it. And of course, big has many definitions, right? Big can mean large dollar amount. Big can mean high profile defendants. Big can be large quantity of defendants. And so it's tough to quantify why this is a big case. And in fact, it's not my biggest case, but it's my most well-known case. And I think that really is what defines it, the, the, the visibility of the case. So what was my role in it? Well, my role was what we call a case agent. I was the agent responsible for pretty much most of the investigative activity. I needed to plan what we were doing and, and execute what we were doing. Of course, bringing in assistance from other agents that I worked with. Often we worked alone, but you know, you, there's certain things that you never do alone. You, you know this, Scott, and, and I think the public knows it somewhat from watching TV. You generally have a partner, and that partner is there to protect you and help you and assist you, and, and we have each other's backs. And so my role in the case was as the case agent, and I like to say that I had responsibility for all of the investigative matters. And I think it's important to distinguish between what I do and what the prosecutors do, because in the early days of a case, my role is greater. And as we get closer to prosecution, my role diminishes. In the beginning of a case, the prosecutor's role is smaller, but gets larger as we get to prosecution. So if you can imagine a chart with a line going up and a line going up as they intersect, one role increases, one role decreases. So in the early days, it was up to me to decide on a strategy, what to do, how to attack the case. I decided early on that I wanted to approach it by a bottom-up strategy, as compared to, for example, going directly right at the top players. I had a sense from speaking to people that there was no way the individuals that I was targeting at the top of this case, Jordan Belfort and Daniel Porsche in particular, that they were going to cooperate with me. Um, and it turned out to be true. And in fact, they were smart enough when they got the first sort of hint or inkling that there was a criminal investigation, they hired attorneys who specifically came into the FBI to represent that they they were now involved and that they represented Jordan Belfort. And what that means for me as a case agent is I don't have the ability to go out and interview that person without their attorney being present. So th they were smart. They, they, they had seen enough TV. They had been around the block enough. And so I decided on a bottom up. And what that meant was finding some crack in the suit of armor. I like to say that Belfort and his uh, workers and his henchmen, they believed that they were in a suit of armor, that they were protected. What I mean by that is, you know, they had lots of lawyers and lots of accountants and, and lots of really loyal cold callers and account openers and, and administrative people who would protect them. But all I needed to do as, a, as an FBI agent was find that crack in the armor. And once I got into the suit of armor, I could take them out. And so what I mean by that, what the analogy is, is yes, it's a securities fraud and money laundering case. But if I could arrest people for other matters and get them in and prosecute them and get them to cooperate against Belfort, I believed I could work my way 
to the top. Ultimately, it, it turned out to be a good strategy. I was criticized for it at some points along the way for the amount of time that it took. But what I think happens here and what the public doesn't understand is that there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. There's a lot of uh, activity that goes on that is never made public that the public never knows about. And so because they don't see it, they don't recognize what's going on. Because in reality, there are a lot of bodies that we picked up along the way. When I What I mean by that is that we arrested, of course, that we prosecuted for crimes other than those directly related to what Belfort was doing. For example, there was a whole group of brokers, there was three or four brokers, that did pay other people to take their exam to become a licensed stockbroker. And so they went and they got phony identification. It had the picture of one person, but the name of the other. And those people went and actually took the exam that allows somebody to act as a broker. And I arrested, and I ultimately arrested them. And, and kudos to the, the lab at the FBI. We sent documents that were literally four or five years old, close to the statute of limitations. And we got fingerprints from those documents that linked the people together to the crime. Now, that's really never been publicized. It's really never talked about, but it went on behind the scenes. And building towards that top of the pyramid are all these people at the bottom who became witnesses, ultimately witnesses against Belfort and Porridge. Some of the pressures that we, that we had along the way. Remember, I said we just set up this brand new squad of agents, and there wasn't really a vast, what we call institutional knowledge, whether it be at the FBI or whether it be at the U.S. Attorney's Office. And so there was some stumbling that went on in the beginning, some fits and starts and so forth. Now, of course, there's, you know, we've got 20, 25 years of, of history here where you have uh, prosecutors and agents who that can build on the history of those that came before them. But in the early days, the FBI was extremely conservative. Some of the techniques which ultimately were used in securities cases like wiretaps and things like that weren't used in the early days. People didn't want to touch those. They didn't want to use the more aggressive statutes. They didn't want to go after brokers for RICO and things like that. Whereas I think nowadays, everything is on the table. Every technique is on the table to go after these guys. One of the other things that's made a significant difference and a significant impact is the advent of digital. We didn't have digital in the days of this case. We didn't have all the computer programs. In fact, at the FBI, we barely even had computers. Literally, this case was done with pencil and paper in sort of the old school way. And so what you what used to take me three, four, five months to do, looking through thousands of boxes of records, hundreds of thousands of trades and linking up buys and sales and contraparties can be done in 30, 30 minutes. What used to take me three months can be done in 30 minutes. So, you know, digital certainly has helped from that perspective. But as we know, I mean, crime has also migrated to the internet and that makes things more difficult. So it's always this game of falling behind and catching up, falling behind and catching up along the way. And I think it's a, a story that will continue into perpetuity. There was a point in time where penny stocks and these type of uh, deals that Belfort and his firm underwrote, people were saying that that's over. It's never coming back. Well, history has shown that that's not true. It just goes through a cycle. It changes. It may go from penny stocks to insider trading and from insider trading to corrupt hedge funds, corrupt hedge funds to something else. But it ultimately works its way back. They recycle it. They come up with new ways of doing it. But it's really the, the same old scam. And just very quickly, if I can explain what Belfort did, 
And this is ultimately what we prosecuted him for. Belfort was manipulating stocks in the U.S. by taking an initial public offering and what we call a pump and dump. A pump and dump is illegal. IPOs are not illegal in and of themselves. They can be used in an illegal way. And that's exactly what he did. He merged the two together. He would offer securities to the public. He would move the price of the stock up through manipulative practices. When it got to a predetermined rate, he sold his shares. He pulled away the support and the price came crazy down again. And he did that over and over. He did it numerous times. And it, it sounds like, well, that should be very easy to figure out if he does it the same way. There's a lot of bells and whistles that went into hiding and disguising what actually happened. But in a simplistic way, that's what he did. Ultimately, he had so much cash and he was looking to invest in some of his own deals and do it covertly that he decided to take his money overseas. He had people smuggle it out of the country, millions of dollars, and he deposited it into Swiss bank accounts and then used those offshore companies and bank accounts to invest in his own deals. And that's ultimately what we took him down for was for those crimes of smuggling the money out of the country, reinvesting it back into his deals. And he was charged with securities fraud, and money laundering. Now, one last thing, you know, where Scott and I come in, and Scott, you can back me up on this. In the early days of these cases, we could not get good penalties. We couldn't get good jail time. The courts just would not impose significant jail time on these defendants. And so we would routinely do $20, $30 million fraud cases, and the defendants would get six months of probation. And so it became a, a, an important tactic used by me was to seize the assets because that's where it really hurt them. I mean, these guys would steal the money because they wanted to buy the boats and the cars and the houses and so forth. And of course, the cocaine and everything else that comes with those vices. In Balfour's case, I mean, we seized everything. This was even early in the days of asset forfeiture. The, the prosecutors that I worked with, I mean, this was all very new to them. The only place asset seizure had been used prior really was in drug cases. Um, and in fact, I had an early prosecutor in the case say to me one time after I explained the case to him and I said, I, I want to you know, charge him with money laundering and I want to seize all the assets. And he looked at me and he said, well, where are the drugs? And I said, well, what do you mean? They use lots of drugs, but they're not dealing in drugs. He goes, well, then you, you can't charge money laundering and you can't seize the assets if it's not drug related. Well, of course, that's just not true. I mean, the statute is very broad and it covers many, many different kinds of crimes. But because it was really so new, both the money laundering laws and the securities laws, they didn't have the knowledge. And ultimately, we overcame all of those objectives. We seized all of his assets including the boat, which you see in the movie, which isn't ag exactly a true statement, but let me explain that. With money laundering, once the money is tainted, once it's dirty, it's always dirty, regardless of the characteristics that the money takes on. So for example, in our case, Belfort stole this money from the public. It became his bank account. Belfort then sends a wire transfer to buy a boat, pays for a boat, five, six million dollar boat. So now those proceeds went from customer money to his money to now it's a boat. Well, the boat ultimately sinks during a trip in the Caribbean. An insurance company pays off on the boat. So the dirty money becomes insurance proceeds, and he takes those insurance proceeds and he buys a very beautiful beach home in Southampton, Long Island. And we ultimately seized the beach house. So I like to joke and say we seized the boat. We really didn't seize the boat, but we followed the money, which is a very common expression you always hear. We followed the money and it led us to the beach house. And because we could link it back to the original crime, we seized the beach house. We took all of the assets that we could find. 
that Belfort possessed. Did we get all of the assets? No. Will you ever get all of the assets? No. Did we arrest all of the people who committed crimes at Stratton Oakmont? No. Can you ever? No, it's impossible to do. And I think it's important for the public to know that there are certain you know, limitations on resources. And people like to think that the FBI has unlimited resources. And like you see on TV, we push buttons and things get done. It's not quite that way. And so you really need to focus on those that you believe are the most important to the case, ultimately to lead you to the biggest players. Of course, they are the people you want to get. And I will say that in this case, as we got to Belfort and Porsche, everybody along the way, we built such a strong case and had such strong evidence that they all pled guilty and agreed to cooperate. We did a second round of spinoff cases from this based on the cooperation of the first round. There were two individuals who took us to trial, but both were convicted. So in in this case, we have 15, 16 arrests throughout the years, different people, other people that we cut deals with and, and gave them a pass, basically, in order to cooperate. They were generally lower level players. Like, for example, Jordan Belfort's wife, she was offered a deal. You know, Belfort was given an ultimatum and cooperate with us. And if you do, we give your wife a pass. But if you don't, we will indict her within 24 hours. And we were ready to go and to do that. And we just felt that we believed that cutting her break was not giving up very much in order to get the cooperation of Belfort. And so we did. So, you know, a lot of people think that we go about this purely mechanically, purely coldly. But no, those things play into the calculations. And look, at the end of the day, we overcame all of the pressures, all of the obstacles. We, we came from sort of a knowledge deficit. And at the end of the day, we produced a very good case, a very interesting case, one that has gone on to sort of grow based on, on the books and the movies. No, that was great, Greg. And, and you know, it's funny, it's, we did have the opportunity to work together on this, but there's a lot of stuff that you shared. And so it's interesting, that, you know, so many years later, you hear these things for the first time. So a couple of follow-up things before we move on to the next part of the agenda, which is, you mentioned this wasn't even your biggest case, but just your best known case. You know, did there come a point when you realized that this wasn't a run-of-the-mill stock manipulation? And, and when you did realize it, what event or what fact kind of brought that to your, into focus for you? Right. I had been exposed to the markets. I understood the markets prior to this. So for me coming in, I knew that the activities that he was engaged in were fairly commonplace, believe it or not. So to the outside world, because he was so flamboyant, because he was throwing money around and he, because he grew so quickly, it was a unique, different thing for them. But for me, it wasn't because I knew this had been going on behind the scenes. I, I knew the, the people who were mentors to Belfort. I knew them. I knew who, who they were. Um, I was aware of fraud in the markets, you know, years before ever being involved in this case. So again, it became a big case for me in, in the sense that notoriety-wise, for sure, but that came much, much, much later at the end. But it was a big case work-wise and people-wise, managing and limiting my desire to go after everybody was hard because you you do when you open these cases you see who who is doing what and you you want to go after it but you can't it became a big case number wise ultimately for the time i think it was about 200 million dollars in fraud by today's standards it's small but by the standards of the day putting it in context it was very big so yes was it a big case number wise yes was it a good a good case and a big case visibility wise for the time yes of course you know cases like bernie madoff come along and dwarf it number wise there's been 
other big securities cases, hedge fund insider trading cases and so forth. But I, I think what makes this one unique, a little bit more unique is because of the people who were involved and how quickly they grew and, and that sort of that craziness that came with it. An insider's clue. You know, if you if you saw the movie, you saw plenty of drugs and sex and that kind of crazy activity. In real life, it was worse. It was worse than what you see in the movie. It was, imagine a bunch of testosterone-filled 20-something-year-old males and what they can do, the, the havoc they can wreak when they have millions of dollars to spend. And so, and one guy always trying to outdo the other guy. And so from that perspective, I have to tell you, I didn't see many cases with the same level of insane activity that I had in that case. I think that one is probably the top of them all as it relates to just really just insane activity, uh, spending the money. Most of these cases that I worked, you know, the money was spent on houses and cars and things like that. So these guys spent lots of it on prostitutes and cocaine and other types of drugs, quaaludes and so forth. You know, it's funny. Um, I interviewed our, our mutual friend and the prosecutor on this case, Joel Cohen, about, and we talked a little bit about the case and he said the exact same thing. It was like, however it is portrayed in the movie and the debauchery actually didn't even approach what was actually happening, which is which is hard to imagine. And I have to give kudos to Joel Cohen. Um, Joel was, believe it or not, this is one of the other obstacles was the turnover of prosecutors. I mean, it took me, I think, six years to ultimately catch Belfort working our way through these lower levels. But I went through five prosecutors in six years. That's literally like changing a prosecutor every year almost. And how do you start a giant investigation like this over again five times? Kudos to Joel because he came in. I had most of the international aspect of this case already charted out. Joel was very open and receptive to hearing about the case and, and understanding. He didn't bring any ego to it. We got along great as individuals. And literally within 18 months of him coming on board, he took the information that I had and he wrapped it up into an indictment. And that includes getting records from offshore and so forth, which, you know, is very time consuming. So nothing but great things to say about Joel and his participation in this case. In fact, I, I don't even think we would have ever made this case if Joel had not come on board and had entered into it with an open mind and, and looked at the evidence and, and ran with it. Yeah. One of the most financially savvy prosecutors I ever work with, if not the most savvy. So um, one last question before we move on to the rest of the agenda. You know, in, investigations aren't usually cause for excitement in an FBI field office. You know, big deal. I've got 30 of them. So and then for that matter, U.S. Attorney's Office, it's what they do. It's just one of thousands in what was then our social circle is not exactly a big deal. Uh, but sometimes there comes a time when a case starts to garner the attention of bosses and has the potential to kind of get media attention. And that can sometimes bring unwanted attention and a distraction from the tasks at hand. Can you talk about what started to happen when some of those things did start to happen in terms of pressures you faced either from within the Bureau or the U.S. Attorney's Office or, or external pressures? Sure. I think, look, when I think one of the things, and, and I'm concerned about the FBI these days in the sense that you start getting press inquiries and everybody, every agent that opens a case wants it to be a well-known case. The tough part for us is we do these great cases. Rarely can we talk about them. I mean, this one, I have the luxury of speaking as much as I do about it because the bad guy himself has disclosed most of the details. And because it is so old at this point that the Bureau will allow me and has signed off on me speaking about it. So I have that benefit in that way. But I know during the time the case was going on, we would receive telephone calls and inquiries from the press. And 
I was trained from day one to have no contact with the press. And I followed that. And I followed that my entire career. It was only after I retired that I ever spoke to the press about any of my cases. And it's a good thing, too, because um, I think people who write articles and produce and publish publications, they've got their own agenda. And it may not be the same as your agenda, right? And so I never spoke to the press. But there's this constant pressure in the press with the underlying current being, what are they doing? What are they doing? And if I may make an analogy where I see this nowadays is with the John Durham investigation, right? He recently came out with an indictment, but prior to that, it was radio silence. Nobody knew. And, and I had many people come up to me and say, oh, he's doing nothing. There's nothing going on. Nothing going on. But you don't know. Maybe there is nothing going on. Maybe there's a lot going on. And the public doesn't know that. And so there's intense pressure there. Cases need to be moved. In the early days of this squad, nobody knew how long it would take to do these type of cases. And, you know, you can wrap up a bank robbery investigation in a couple of hours, right? But it takes months or years to do a RICO investigation. And the Bureau was comfortable with spending months or years doing a RICO investigation because they had a history of doing them. But they weren't comfortable, right? When we set up this squad, you want quick results because you want to promote the squad. You want to get more resources. And this case turned out to be a longer term investigation for different reasons. And there was a lot of pressure there to get things done. Wrap it up. Let's move on to the next one. And I just kept plugging along, knowing that we would get to where we wanted to be. As long as I kept picking up defendants along the way, we were fine. But that pressure from the outside, and it then translates to the inside, to know what's going on, it's really tough. It's, I mean, you constantly have to fight it. And you should never talk to the press when you're an agent and you're working an active investigation. I just don't think it ever benefits you, despite the fact that you want to see your name in print or on the internet. My recommendation for new agents is stay away from it. Don't do it. It will cause nothing but problems. So we didn't talk about this in preparation for the session, but it, it, something just popped in my head that I just think is really kind of funny irony. So the one MDB case, the embezzlement from the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund was an enormous case, high profile. But one of the funniest side notes to me was the fact that the money that funded the making of the Wolf of Wall Street movie was embezzled from the Malaysian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is just talk about things going full circle. So it's a movie about a guy who stole money, which is financed by a guy who stole money. And there was also a 300-foot yacht instead of a 175-foot yacht. Yeah, things just get bigger and bigger. (laughs) That's a perfect example, 1MDB. Another great case done by agents that, that you and I both know, worked hard, doesn't get the same recognition. I mean, there is a book out there about it written by a very good Wall Street Journal reporter, but that's a big case, right? Dollar amounts that dwarf this and then ultimately sort of led to the downfall of the Malaysian prime minister, but didn't get nearly as much press as I think it deserves. And sort of the complexities, as you mentioned, how it all sort of this bizarre linkage, yeah, is, is the best. So switching gears a little bit here, internal investigations are something many members of our audience are involved in to varying degrees. You know, in fact, a lot of compliance officers and in-house counsel, internal audit, human resources, periodically, they're kind of forced to step outside of their comfort zone 
and perform an internal investigation, even though their primary job is not to perform an investigation. So now adding to those challenges, the fact that the workforce is scattered to you know the four corners of the universe because of COVID and remote work environments that continue today, you know, with a large number of people working remotely. So how have internal investigations changed since COVID? Well, I think uh, there's been a big change, right? Monitoring, and, and, and I'll use some examples as it relates to the stock market, right? Because that's sort of where my my expertise is. If you're on a trading desk at a bank and everybody, this is pre-COVID and everybody's in the office together, most of those banks have monitoring systems on their phones. They, they don't allow conversations with clients on personal phones. People who come in and out of the office are clocked in and clocked out. And now this pandemic hits and everybody's spread everywhere and people aren't prepared for it. So they are now using their personal phone to conduct all of their business. Whereas brokerage firms and banks should be concerned, they're using your phone to conduct the illicit business. Now they have to allow their employees to conduct business on their personal phones and they're not able to monitor any of the things that they were forced, had the ability to monitor before. So I think there is a period here in the beginning of the pandemic where I suspect a, a lot of bad things went on that haven't probably come to light yet, but will. Trading arrangements that went on, you know, illicit conversations went on that couldn't be monitored, couldn't be tracked that may or may not come out for our lifetime, once in a lifetime type thing. Nobody was prepared for it. Nobody had really ever anticipated the entire economy shutting down. So I think a couple of things with internal investigations. First of all, institutions should temper their expectations if they send in a person to conduct an internal investigation and that person has never been trained to conduct an investigation. It really would be smarter for companies to have somebody on staff that they send out for training that has some idea how to conduct an investigation. Now, we, we had a, a joke in the FBI about conduct a logical investigation, and, and we used to joke about it. But as I, as I travel the world and I talk to people about investigations, you realize that, no, there's a certain mindset that people like you and I bring to the job at the FBI that Many people just don't have this inquisitiveness, this curious about things, the ability to just keep asking why, 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 why until, until we get the answer and paying attention and listening. So I think it would, it would be smart for institutions to designate one or two people as potential investigators should the need arise and they should train those people. Otherwise, you really need to temper your expectations because that's like asking me to go and repair an automobile and I've had no experience repairing an automobile. How I could change the oil and I could change the filters, but I don't know how to work the computer systems and things like that. And so what kind of results can you really get? And so the displacement of people um, throughout the country and in their private residences, it presents great difficulties for institutions. And so how do you get around that? Well, now we know. Now now we have to be planning for it. If this happens again, there really should be no excuse for any large institution not to have plans in place for remote communications and disaster plans in place. Nobody ever thought they would need the plans that were there, but clearly we did. I think many, many companies responded in tremendous ways, really deserve great praise for what they did. But I think as far as crime, I don't think we know yet how bad it will be. I think the one saving grace may be is that even the people who would normally steal and cheat were concerned about what was going on and would, their attentions were distracted towards the COVID rather than stealing and cheating. It's funny, you made some really good points that I, I want to kind of follow up on. You know, nobody in mapping out a strategy or kind of 
talking about, you know, what the future holds for an organization necessarily factors investigations into their thought process, but they probably should, right? Even if they've been fortunate that, you know, they haven't had to deal with a major investigation, the larger the organization, the greater the risk appetite. It's just a matter of time. And so just thinking through the what ifs beforehand and writing it down and being introspective and saying, or oh, what are we good at? What are we not good at? And how do we fill those gaps? So when the inevitable happens and we have to do an internal investigation, we're not going to screw it up. And no, I think that point that you made is really good is to have some people cross-trained because that shows some forethought. And I think that's a very important takeaway. People should be thinking about it. There should be a written policy. There should be people's names or at least roles that are slotted in. If this happens, this is what we should do. You know, I think the reality of it is this. If, if it becomes a major scandal, they're going to bring in outside law firms and consulting firms anyway. But you as an internal officer director should want to get your finger on the pulse of what's going on as quickly as possible. And the best way to do that is to have people internally start the process. So even, even if the process will end up with an outside consulting firm or law firm, I still think it's important to have people inside who can ask the right kind of questions, gather the information quickly, understand the need for fast information so that decisions can be made. If they're hemorrhaging money through some illegal activities, then that institution will want to know quickly where to, where to stop the bleeding, right? And you can bring in an outside firm, but it's going to take them way too long to figure out exactly what's going on as compared to somebody who knows all of the internal people and all of the internal systems. So have those people in place. Like you said, doesn't need to be a specific person, but whoever fills that role, if that role changes every two years, then retrain those people every two years. As a new person comes in, train them. A new person comes in, train them. You know, often what happens is you train somebody, they leave, the new person comes in and nobody trains the new person, right? So they're tasked with doing this job that they don't have the tools or the skills to do. So it's difficult. I mean, turnover and change, it makes it difficult but I think it's important. So investigations have different stages, as, as you well know, and it's important to try to conduct them when you can, when circumstances allow, in a, in a certain order. You know, and interestingly, much of the early steps of an internal investigations are actually best performed remotely and discreetly, sort of the, the part of the session title that is the more they stay the same, right? It's just these are things that are constants in an investigation and they're pretty core to the process. So what are some of those preliminary covert steps of an investigation that you can do remotely that are not dissimilar to the way that they're done, you know, in a non-COVID setting? Well, I think the similarity between COVID and non-COVID is you always have to gather the basic information first. Gather the documents. If this is something involving the movement of money, pull the bank account records, see who signed the forms. That's a basic, you know, whether the case will ultimately end up on Zoom or whether it ends up in an in-person interview. You need that foundation. There's always the, those foundational pieces of information. Figure out what's going on as fast as you can. But even if you don't have that luxury, get as much as you can foundationally. Some of the differences, I think, in the Zoom world versus the old world, let's call it. By the way, I, I think each has advantages and disadvantages. I personally think in-person interviews, if you're properly trained, can be far more beneficial than doing it on Zoom. But Zoom does have some benefits, which I'll get into in a moment. So for example, I'm a big proponent of reading body language. 
And I, I can see people on Zoom, right? But if you're in a conference on Zoom, you have six different boxes on that screen. It's very distracting. And as people are moving around, as they're not participating, it's very distracting. And also on Zoom, really, I can only see you from the chest up. I can't see your hands. I can't see your feet. Whereas with an in-person interview, you can. If you gave me a choice, I would prefer to do everything in person. I think it's better. But what do you do when you have these big corporations where you have East Coast, West Coast, um, Central people, North, South, they're all over? Can, can you do it in person? Well, maybe time doesn't permit. So Zoom and these other products that we use now, they solve that problem. I think a benefit with Zoom is you can bring somebody in on the call whose sole role is to listen and take notes so that you're not distracted. Because when you do these interviews, you should always do them with a partner, at least one, if not two, so that one person can focus, one person can ask the question, one person can go down their line of questioning without interruption, but the other people can sit and watch. Now, you can do this in person also, and I did, and I used to do it all the time. But with Zoom, I can look at somebody in one of these boxes, and they don't even know that I'm looking at them. And so I can look very closely, right? But they don't know who I'm looking at because you have five or six little boxes on here. So that that is a benefit of Zoom. But again, it's limited to facial features, which are probably one of the least sort of reliable body language indicators, right? Because think about it. You, you've heard the expression poker face. Well, that's about disguising your thoughts and emotions, you know, when you're playing poker. So if all you can see is somebody's face from a body language perspective, it's not an optimum situation. So I would always recommend in person if you can do it. But if you can't, you make do with Zoom and Zoom hat does have some benefits or whatever, you know, go to meeting or whatever the program is. So interviews are decidedly part of the overt phase of the investigation. We talked a little bit about the things that you could do covertly, but it comes a point where you've exhausted those covert steps and then you move to the overt phase. And, and certainly the most noteworthy overt uh, investigative step is witness and subject interviews. So how important is it to prepare for a witness interview? And when is the ideal sort of juncture to perform them in the arc of an investigation? Yeah, this, this is one where I've both done very well and I've done poorly because it's all about timing and, it, and it's really about estimation and timing and so forth. If I had to do some of my investigations over again, I would have gone overtly sooner, a little bit sooner. Fortunately, they all worked out very well in the long run. I, I have no issues in that respect. But I think I would have gone overtly with some of them sooner than I did. There are different factors that go into play. For example, destruction of evidence. Once you go overt with an investigation, if word leaks out to certain defendants or certain participants or co-conspirators, they may destroy evidence and you may never get that. If it's not backed up by a third party, it's gone and you're never going to get it and you'll never have the ability to use it. Working covertly, you might be able to get a witness to cooperate who can bring you that evidence that otherwise you can't get. Working covertly has the benefit of when people want to work with you, if they have access to that information in the normal course of their duties, they can bring you that information without you having to get a search warrant. What you don't want to do in a covert phase, of course, is get somebody to cooperate and then task them to go get information that they're not privy to and that they don't have access to. You know, you don't want to task somebody 
to go hack into a computer to get information for you, right? But if that's part of the normal course of activity, if it's what they do on a daily basis, that's different. So there are benefits to, to doing it covertly, right? You don't have outside pressures. Um, you don't have outside inquiries. You can develop witnesses secretly and use those witnesses because anytime you can avoid a he said, she said situation with actual explicit recorded testimony, it's good to do. And actually, a thought just popped into my head now. And let me pause there for a moment. You know, I'm talking about recording conversations and you say, well, that's what you did at the FBI, but we don't do that at private companies. Well, no, actually, private companies do often as part of their investigations record conversations. Of course, that should always be run by the attorneys first to make sure that you're not violating wiretap or intercept laws of your particular state. But companies do this all the time. In many cases, they hire outside people to do it. Going overt has benefits too, because once it hits the press, which going overt usually does if it's an interesting and big case, it will shake people loose. It will shake people. It will scare people. And that will force them to come in. And when I say force them, I mean the fear of of us knocking on their door and picking them up as the FBI agents, they would come in and proactively want to get in the door and cut a deal and cooperate to not be the last one on the moving train, as we always used to say. I always think you should do a little bit covertly before going over. I would suspect that in corporate investigations, it really has to be dependent upon what the underlying problematic activity is that will determine how quickly you go over it with it. Another caution, though, of course, and we've seen this play out many times, is cover-up. To cover-up, you, you find something, you decide to cover-up, or you decide to delay, and that delay and that cover-up ultimately become bigger than the initial crime. You, you see it happen all the time. Every single time. The interview itself, I have to you know, use the word temper. I have to refrain from criticizing how in a police procedural an interview is being done so as not to make my wife and son crazy for watching it together. This is a byproduct of Zoom, is it not? Just like any other, any other obstacle, you roll with it, right? So what was instilled in me, and I, I'm sure was instilled in you, in learning how to be an investigator is the right way to approach an interview is to build a rapport with the person, which is not necessarily how it's portrayed on television or in movies, even if it's somebody you find to be appalling. You know, it's something you have to overcome is that this might be the most reprehensible human being you've ever sat across the table from, but for the purpose of achieving the objective of the interviews, you have to find some common ground, even despite maybe not liking the person personally. So how does one go about doing that in general, but then also, you know, what are some of the challenges of building rapport in a video conferencing context? I agree with you 100%. The finger wagging, name calling is terrific television, but it's terrible investigating. And I never did it. I, I was never one who, who did that. I didn't believe it worked. And I'm confident today that it doesn't work, except in very limited situations. I always took a very direct approach, and I still somewhat do. I think building rapport, if you take a genuine interest, I could be interviewing a serial killer, and I've got a genuine interest in understanding 
how that serial killer's mind works and why they did the things that they did, right? So it makes it easy for me. I'm a genuinely curious person about things like that. And I think that is something that helps build rapport. It separates those who are feigning interest, right? I think smart people, when you interview them, and when I say smart, I mean street smart more than book smart. Uh, street smart people know when you're, when you're BSing them. They know because they, that's their world. That's what they live in. And so right. I, I never did that. I never bluffed. Part of my whole way of operating was very direct and very straightforward. But yes, think about this. You know, you said about building rapport. Do you tell people that you don't like all of your dirty secrets? No, you only tell those to your innermost circle, the people that you really like. So if you get the person on the other side of the table to like you. And again, it doesn't mean overt tactics that are obvious to everybody. In many cases, I think if people were just themselves, if they would just approach it in a very direct but sincere way, it comes across. Here's the thing with Zoom, which I think can be a benefit. People are afraid when they're in person to ask the hard question. Whereas when you're on Zoom, this provides a level of protection where you can actually go at somebody a little bit harder and you can ask more direct questions. I think people do. I never had a problem doing it even when I was in person. I, I developed the skills to do it. But I get why people are hesitant to attack somebody or accuse somebody. And when I say attack and accuse, again, I don't mean like on law and order with the finger and the swearing. I mean asking very direct questions. Did you steal the money? I think there are many people in the corporate world who would have difficulty saying, why did you do that? Right. They, they want to ask him a million little questions around the periphery instead of just coming out and saying, well, why did you do that? I think using this uh, forum computer with, with cameras, I think it adds a level of protection where people will ask more direct questions now because they feel a bit protected. They're separated from the subject. And so I think that's a good thing. But again, I think in person is better if you can do it. And I would always encourage if you can do in person over video, always do in person. Always. Although the nice thing is the person you're interviewing is less likely to lunge across the table and assault you. That could be. So two more things I think we, I'd, I'd like to bring out in our, our remaining four minutes is one is what are some of the common mistakes people make in internal investigations to things like chain of custody, handling electronic evidence, attorney-client privilege, and what steps should they take to avoid making them? Okay. I think the number one issue is forming an opinion first and then going out and looking for the evidence. Keep an open mind. That's number one. And that's above all else. Because if you don't keep an open mind, you're never going to find the evidence and you'll have no chain of custody issues, right, for the evidence. So you, you need to go into it with an open mind. Look for evidence that will form your opinion. Don't form an opinion and look for evidence to support it. But assuming you go into this with an open mind, be inquisitive. Ask lots of questions. Don't be afraid to say you don't know. Don't be afraid to ask somebody to explain more than one time if you don't understand. And I used to hate this when you would be pushed to move forward before everybody is up to speed on in understanding. So go in with an open mind. Don't move on until you understand or at least have a, a very rudimentary understanding, right? If you're completely in the dark about something, if you don't understand what's being explained to you, stop it, repeat it until you know, and then move on. You can always build, right? So once you're moving forward, yes, chain of custody is an important issue. And nowadays with digital information, it's even more important. You know, ma maintaining that metadata, 
maintaining systems, if it's the old school sort of physical issues of documents and things like that, get those documents, maintain a chain of custody in case those documents ever need to be sent for fingerprints by the police or used as part of a civil prosecution or criminal prosecution. It needs to be documented when it goes from one person to the next to the next. I think what is really disturbing is how often, and you see this happen even in the federal level among investigative agencies. Agencies where where what the entire world sees as highly critical evidence is not secured. And ultimately, of course, what always happens is it can't be found or it disappears. And everybody shakes their head going like, how, how is that possible? And, you know, how, how could it have disappeared? How could they not have known to secure that information? So yes, chain of custody is very important going into it. And coordination with other investigators and the lawyers, of course, always there should be always contact with the lawyers. One last question, which is, you know, when we were both agents, the tangible manifestation of our work was, you know, an arrest, an indictment or a conviction. Mm -hmm. But in the private sector, there's a much greater emphasis placed on the written word. So what are some tips you would give on writing compelling investigative report? And, and is there anything different about that report in a remote environment? No, I think ultimately the report should be the same, whether it's done remotely or in person. The actual final document, I don't think should be any different because I think the puzzle pieces that go into putting it together are the same. I think it's important to distinguish between facts and opinion. I think you can get away with creating a separate section in reports in private industry that you couldn't do in the court of law. But I would be very conscious of distinguishing between facts and opinion. I would also be very careful not to draw conclusions if that's not what you want to do, right? And we all know that when people write reports, Words. They can write it with a slant towards whatever outcome they're looking to achieve. We all know that. But anybody who's sophisticated on the other side can also see that, right? So whatever you can create, they can unwind. But I, I still think that the strongest reports are those that are based on the facts. And I think the strongest cases are those that are based on the facts. And that's why the report should be that way because ultimately you want to win the case. You know, there's a lot of things that can happen in investigations and twists and turns. And you, we often see this even in the criminal world where it looks like it's a slam dunk sealed case, but the other side comes up with some novel approaches to attack what you have done in order to win their case. And so I think if you're very careful, we follow all those chain of custody things, you, you, you document things accurately and properly, and maybe you even record the interviews rather than just writing notes. Nowadays, it's becoming very common to record interviews. Then it's, you know, there's no doubt as to what was said. It's on there, right? There's no doubt as to whether it was a coerced interview. So I think whether it's done by Zoom or in person, the report at the end of the day should be the same. It should state the facts. It should separate facts from opinion. If you want to draw a conclusion, that's fine. If you want to extrapolate, that's fine. But just make it clear that that's what's happening in the report. Well, Greg, we're at time. This has been a great conversation uh, for me personally, because it's great to catch up with you and talk about our common interests and investigations. And, and, and also, I think you've, you've shared some really, really good insights for the, for the audience. So thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thank you to you, Scott, and to the people at NAVEX for having me. It's been a pleasure.
This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Navix Global, for making this content available to our listeners. And stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic, or guest you'd like to hear about in a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening. 